Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Funk Radio. This is your host, Kyle. And this is your host, Peter. And you are the listeners. Hello and welcome to Funk Radio. So we're going to talk about the evolution of video game music. Now, if your listeners listen to us regularly, you'll know my goofy story of I attempted to write an episode script on chiptunes, only to realize that we had done that about two years ago. So that idea kind of evolved into, well, instead of talking about chiptunes and how people use old video games, digital music creators to make music, let's talk about actually how this medium evolved uh, from, say, you know, the Atari all the way on up to current video game systems. Well, and something we had mentioned recently was the fact that, like, well, for one, the technology of video games advanced extremely quickly, Mm -hmm. and obviously, like, the music alongside it. So not only was there growth, but there was growth that changed dramatically even within like a 10-year period. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, you guys will see that when we start kind of getting through the timeline of this. But yeah, there was a major growth in the capabilities of video game music for within from like, you know, 1990 to 1998, basically. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get into the weeds of this, and it's a little technically complex. I'll try to boil it down as much as I can, but there's some stuff that even I didn't get but or so we're gonna kind of yeah go over this with a surface level understanding so really early video game music like atari and stuff was really only limited to simple melodies uh that actually used early sound synthesizer technology so this kind of coincides a little bit with like the synthesizer and i don't remember if we i think we talked about the history of those didn't we pretty sure we did in some capacity or another uh, if you want to look up whether we did or not, you can go to our website, getyourfunk.com, and search in the search bar for synthesizer. Well, so it looks like we talked about... I'm, not, I'm doing the search as you're talking about it. It looks like we did one specifically on voice synthesizers. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. And we've talked about synth music like as a tangent of other topics, but mm. it sounds like we haven't specifically talked about that i think it's in our list though I i'm think sure I i'm sure it is it sounds so familiar i guarantee if we didn't talk about it we plan to so yeah. look forward to that in the future listeners <laughs> so yeah basically uh, for lack of a better term older video game systems were uh limited by the sound range of their time and so that kind of is what now became known as chiptune music and then, obviously, as the technology grew, you know, the limitations started to go away. So, right before video games, it's like, you know, we had there were computers before video games, actually, which is kind of weird to think about. But <laughs> the earliest sort of precursors to that sort of electronic chiptune style music can literally be traced back all the way to the 1950s. Huh. I don't know if you listeners have ever seen, like, pictures of old hard drive computers from like the 50s and 60s like nasa would use these huge machines the size of like refrigerators that had like running tape on them and stuff yeah i guess all the way going back as far as 1951 there were two really large computers back then one called uh i'm gonna butcher this CIRAC, which is an acronym i assume it's c-s-i-r-a-c and another computer called the Ferranti mark one 
they actually were able to use these computers to perform real-time synthesized digital music in public, which was the first time that was ever done. I couldn't really find any recordings of this, so I'm going to trust that that actually happened. (laughs) (laughs) And Abraham Lincoln was there, and he said, hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, yeah, computers all the way going back then could, you know, in some form, digitally reproduce audio sound um, and music. And one of the earliest sort of examples that I could find of uh, this being demonstrated to what's the word, proof of concept kind of scale is, I guess, back in 1978. So again, this is about, what, 30 years difference. There was a uh, festival called the First Philadelphia Computer Music Festival. So I was able to actually find a little clip, one of the computer systems that was used back then to create this chiptune style sound. Someone actually played the Beatles song, uh, Hey Jude, so let's play so, a little. Sorry, go ahead. I was so to clarify here. So this is not a synthesizer in the in the in like the keyboard sense. This is like a computer. Yes, this program. is a computer synthesizing basically simple tones and reproducing them and being able to play certain notes essentially. Huh. Now I don't know if they chose Hey Jude because Hey Jude is a very simple song to play. Right. We'll play a little clip of it, but yeah, it it's definitely sounds like, you know, super early sort of beat boop sort of, <laughs> I don't know how better to describe it, beat boop music. That's uh, that's interesting. It sounds pretty much. I mean, it's not that I'm a video game super fan or anything, but I mean that sounds. It sounds like pretty much on on par with like any like NES games that sort of era of yeah. music. Yeah, it sound it, it kind of sounds like you know when, when the pongs thing hit and they go bunk bunk bunk. Yeah. So it's very very rudimentary. Um, obviously by even especially by today's standards, but that was pretty groundbreaking at the time to be able to basically play music from on a computer it sounds more polished than i was expecting i mean i guess i got kind of thrown because we were talking about the 50s but then this is like yeah. 25 years later yeah um but it, it sounds it sounds good for mm-hmm. the time in the mid to late 70s you know arcade games started becoming a thing uh obviously the atari home console was the first home console video game but that one didn't even have music though right didn't it just have very basic? Not really. Not that I remember. Effects. I mean, like I've played a lot of Atari games, but they did have sound effects like Pong and stuff, and there were sounds right. that went along with it. But it never seemed like it was ever complex enough to kind of have like a soundtrack, so to speak. Right. Okay. So yeah, as I was saying, basically through arcades and through the Atari console, video games basically became a really popular form of entertainment in the late seventies, and. Music at the time was stored on a physical medium, basically records, in analog waveforms on things like 8-tracks, cassettes, records. And there wasn't really a manner at the time to sort of digitize that sound, if that makes sense. Right. You know, having an arcade cabinet with like that has like a record playing in it or a cassette tape or something is kind of prohibitively, prohibitively uh, expensive and heavy. 
uh, which didn't really make them ideal for use, which is why, like you were kind of saying, most arcade games at the time didn't really have like a soundtrack. Well, the, I mean, had, yeah, I mean, the, like you like you're saying, the whole the whole thing was that music at the time was completely analog, mm-hmm. and video games were completely digital. So it's like you can't necessarily mix those, at least in a cost-effective way. Mm-hmm. The more affordable way to kind of have music and even really sound effects in a video game was obviously through uh, digital. So there would be a specific computer chip on the circuit board that would change the electrical impulses from computer code into sound waves uh, mm-hmm. that would be output through a speaker. The early, one of the earliest examples that I could find of this where not only is there sound effects, but there's actually sort of a sort of a soundtrack tune is this uh, arcade game invented in 1975 by T- Tomochiro Nishikato. I found a cl- clip of some gameplay of Gunfight, and you can kind of hear it plays like this... I forget the tune. It's like, like a Death March tune or something. Like the Grim Reaper song. I don't remember the name of the song. But mm. you'll, you'll recognize it when you hear it. But it plays that little tune whenever you die, I think. Or maybe you kill the enemy. I don't remember. So yeah, let's right. let's play a little clip of the tune that's played in the 1975 game Gunfight. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, at, at the time, I'm sure that was uh, quite an accomplishment in itself. Yeah, even even creating a sound effect like that, or a, whatever a piece of music that's kind of triggered by you know an event in the game, is probably pretty groundbreaking back then. Hmm. So yeah, that's one of the earliest examples I could find of even the idea of having music in a video game was. The arcade game Gunfight, which I never even heard of. Uh, then again, I wasn't alive back then. <laughs> While this mechanism sorted, sort of allowed the inclusion of really simple music in early arcade video games, it was very, as you heard, it was very mono, monotone, and it would be used pretty sparingly in stages, or like, let's say you reach a new level in the game or something, it would play a little tune. Another good example of this is actually a like about five years later, is the very famous uh, video game Pac-Man, which mm. came out in 1980. The score, music, whatever you want to call it, for that game was composed by Toshio Kai. Mm. And this this music is kind of the first sort of iconic video game music that I can recall. And you can you can see even just in five years how it went from like that monotone weird sort of pong sounding thing to something a little bit more nuanced so let's play a little clip of the pac-man opening music yeah i mean when you think of old-timey video game music that's probably one of the more recognizable ones Mm -hmm. exactly you make an interesting point that at this time it's not like the games had a musical score to them or any like ongoing music. It was more triggered by events or like starting the level or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's like, that was kind of limited not only to the song being like a couple seconds long, but also happening fairly 
uh, infrequently. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I'm sure the part of that was just, you know, the bandwidth of memory that they could store, you know. Right. <laughs> they didn't want to waste memory capacity on audio when they could focus on visual uh, graphics. Right. So this basically was the way video game music was for a decent amount of time. Uh, throughout the early 80s, there was obviously advances made in silicon technology that allowed the costs of computer chips to come down. There's some major, I guess, manufacturers that were often used at this time, including, uh, I guess, Yamaha made these uh, sound generator chips called the YMs. Uh, Motorola, uh, I didn't even know Motorola was around back then, made um, <laughs> sound chips called the 68,000, 68, whatever, CPU. So they were starting to develop sound chips that basically were specific for generating and automating, I guess, sound for the video games and arcades and stuff, which up to that point, I believe it was all stored on like a single chip. Basically, this era was defined by, I guess, what can be termed as 8-bit. In the simplest terms, basically, 8-bit music is named because of the 8-bit sound processors, processors that early game consoles like the Atari the Commodore 64 used to generate sound. But the, the, the thing that's kind of fascinating about these old 8-bit uh, sound chips is there was a finite number of sounds that these chips could even generate. So composers kind of had to develop certain sort of tricks to kind of make sounds sound good to be kind of memorable to the people playing the video games. So, yeah, this, this sort of composer sound... Com- whatever you want to call it, sound program or uh, 8-bit style music, kind of defined the, you know, early to mid-80s of not only arcade cabinets, but home consoles. You you make a good point, too, that, like, I think part of what they wanted to do, especially in this era, is to make the music as pleasant as possible, but also um, memorable as well, since they Mm -hmm. had so little to work with. Exactly. You know, in the early 80s, you had your Atari 2600, you had um, Commodore 64, and then um, there's there was also the ColecoVision, which came out in 1982, and that one was a bit groundbreaking because I guess it was capable of four channels, which means I guess it could generate four different tones simultaneously to kind of create a sense of harmony. Oh, you know, I've watched um, videos that explain this sort of thing, like, in pretty deep detail. And yeah, it's like, not only can they play different tones simultaneously Mm -hmm. um, to create more, like, uh, multi-dimensional sound, but also sometimes those, depending on the system, some of those channels would only be capable of producing certain types of sound waves. Mm. And one one example, I suppose, um, I mean, and again, I haven't, looked into this in a while so i'm kind of pulling from memory here but it's like imagine if channels one and two were like playing your musical melodies and one of the other channels might be specifically for like playing drum beats or something oh okay if that makes sense i think no i think i get you i think i get you and i don't know specifically about the coleco vision or whatever this is like i don't know about that one specifically but i've seen that in at least some in many cases, it does work that way. Mm-hmm. 
So the ColecoVision, yeah, I mean, it was pretty groundbreaking at the time because it had, you know, four channels. It was able to play four, four tones at the same time. However, the release of the Famicom in 1983, which would later be released in the U.S. as the Nintendo Entertainment System in 85, was actually capable of five channels mm. of sound generation, with one of them being capable of simple PCM sampled sound. PCM stands for Pulse Code Modulation, uh, which is a method used to digitally represent sampled analog signals. And I guess it's currently kind of the standard form of digital audio in computer CDs. Oh, so so is so this is basically digital audio then, even like in today's form. So that's interesting. So even in eighty three, I guess eighty five, they had at least a, a very small something that could accomplish that. Yeah, play actual sort of digitally recorded or recorded music uh, sound back digitally. Interesting. Basically, yeah, basically the original Nintendo kind of shook up the game when it came to uh, video game music capabilities to the point that by the late 80s, uh, (laughs) video game music was becoming iconic enough that it was actually being sold uh, as cassette tape soundtracks in Japan. Oh, wow. And it actually inspired uh, some American companies, including uh, Cinemaware, Sierra, and Interplay, to kind of actually get more serious about video game music. Hmm. So since we mentioned the Nintendo, uh, the original Nintendo, um, I, I picked two video games from that era that have pretty iconic video game music that I wanted to kind of play to kind of show how this game system, and obviously, you know, being in the late 80s in general, there was a huge quality uh, step up. So let's play a little clip of the main theme from the original Legend of Zelda. It's uh, it's funny because this was in 1986. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it, I mean, this is... Six years after Pac-Man, and you can tell just like how much more, not not only depth to the quality of the music and like complexity of it, but also, mm-hmm. I mean, this song is over a minute long versus, you know, yeah two seconds or whatever the Pac-Man one is. Exactly. So it's uh, pretty incredible in that short amount of time, like how big that jump was. Yeah, that's a very good point. I didn't really think about it. It's, it, it this generational jump of uh home console systems basically allowed for longer musical interludes than say you know pac-man or i can't think of old arcade games i don't know uh i uh another note i want to make about the zelda thing is that you can mm-hmm. hear that there's I, I wouldn't necessarily call them different instruments but there's di- it feels like there's different layers to the music playing at, oh, at the same time which i guess is goes back to those channels we were trying to describe yeah, you can hear the lower tones. It's kind of almost meant to represent kind of like more baritone instruments. You can hear the higher tones. Yeah. But that also gives it more depth so that's not just like a single layer of beep boop music. Exactly. It's it's multiple beeps and boops simultaneously. <laughs> so that was the Legend of Zelda main theme. Uh, probably one of the most iconic video game songs 
ever written. Um, I, I am pr- pretty positive in that chiptune episode that we keep mentioning. Uh, we played the Super Mario Brothers theme song, mm-hmm. um, which not only comes from this era, but it's probably, I think it's considered like the most oh, recognizable video game music of all time. Um, so if you listeners want to listen to that, you can go to the other episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> See, I, yeah, I didn't pick that because I, I knew we had played that last time. I would yeah, pick yeah, a different yeah. one. No doubt that Mario is, as much as I hate to admit it, probably more iconic than Zelda. So yeah, basically the Nintendo was kind of the the end of, I guess, what we'd call the 8-bit era of um, video game music. And then in the early 90s, we'd enter into what's kind of known as the 16-bit era, which used a more hybrid approach uh, of what's called sample and tone, which is kind of alluded to in the with the original NES with where they mentioned that one of the five channels used PCM that's basically sampled sound as opposed to just tone generation. Hmm. So in the 16-bit era, they further combined channels that could play tones and channels that could play sampled uh, sound, sampled recording. Hmm. The Sega Genesis was kind of the first system in this 16-bit era. The Sega Genesis came out in Japan in 1988 and in America in 1989. And it was kind of a leap above the Nintendo in terms of both graphics and sound abilities. Mm -hmm. Basically, this improved sound synthesis of using more sampled channels and tone channels it's it's it allowed them more range but they still kind of approached game sound design in the same way that they had before mm-hmm. sega genesis because it had 10 channels was also able to offer stereo sound whereas mm. because the original nes only had the five channels it only was able to offer sound in mono mm. so it, it did kind of have that leap as well going from mono to stereo interesting one of the more famous music composers back then was this guy named yuzo kashiro And he was able to utilize the Genesis software to produce much more techno-style compositions that were a lot more Hmm. sort of advanced than, I guess, what players were used to for some, you know, for games. So basically, he kind of pushed the limits compositionally of using these, these 10 channels. And he kind of went in a different direction from, say, you know, your Zeldas or your Final Fantasies, which were more orchestral sounding and kind of wanted to create almost more sort of funky dance beats so to speak Hmm. one of his famous more more famous games being streets of rage 2 which came out in 1992 Hmm. i was able to find a little clip of some of the music from this game i never owned a sega uh so i'm a little bit less familiar with these games than i am with nintendo or sony I told you that I I'm, I know I've mentioned this story on on Funk Radio before. How in like 1996 when the N64 came out, um, I asked for it for Christmas, and my mom, being very unfamiliar with video games, got me the Super Nintendo, <laughs> which was the prior generation uh. Uh, Nintendo. <laughs> so I was just like, "Thanks, mom," and that's funny. It it's one of those things where like I'm sure when I opened it I was just super disappointed, but now looking back on it being thirty, I'm so happy I had the chance to play that system just because it allowed me to experience that era of video games. Right. So getting out of the nostalgic bubble I've fallen into. 
Let's play a little clip of uh, the music from the Genesis game Streets of Rage 2, and you'll kind of see what I'm talking about with that sort of more fast-paced techno style. That's really catchy. I like that a lot. Right? I mean, it's basically a beat boopier version of like electronic dance music. Like house music. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's what I think of when I think of like chiptune. I think more dance style music than like Zelda. Um, So eventually video game music would kind of step away from this sample and tone based music into more digitized sound that... It first kind of came out of the scene in the arcade systems of the early 90s. Uh, the, the evolution that happened in arcade cabinets in the early 90s sort of trickled its way down, obviously, to home console games, just like it did back in the 80s. And so with the release of the Super Famicom in 1990, which became known as the Super NES in 91, it sported a specialized custom Sony chip capable of eight channels of sampled sounds at up to a 16-bit resolution. Basically, the gist of it is the Super Nintendo had more um, digital audio channels. It used a specialized Sony chip to create these sounds. It had a 16-bit sound resolution, which was higher fidelity. So it allowed Nintendo to sort of experiment more with applied acoustics in video games such as uh, musical acoustics, which they would end up using in games like Super Castlevania, F-Zero, Final Fantasy IV, uh, and other later games in the system like Chrono Trigger, which is like a shooter action game. So, since we're talking about Nintendo again, the sequel to uh, Legend of Zelda was Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past, which is the first Zelda game that I ever played. Hmm. Let's play a little clip of the uh, some of the soundtrack from that game, and you'll you'll see how vastly different it sounds from even the original Legend of Zelda. Something I I guess I wanted to point out with this, and you can kind of tell with the way it sounds too, is that like I think to reiterate what we were trying to explain with the PCM channels that we're like completely onto now with the Super NES mm-hmm. is that like these are pre-recorded, at least to my knowledge, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, these are pre-recorded audio sounds mm-hmm. rather than relying on the computers or the systems hardware to programmatically generate these sounds on the fly. Exactly. It's more so just pulling from something that was pre-defined and saying, okay, pull pull this sound clip and play this. And obviously these sound clips are very heavily compressed to be able right. to fit onto the memories of these rudimentary games. But you can tell, even in this Legend of Zelda song, they're more trying to mimic, you know, actual instruments like horns and flutes and drums as opposed to just tones. Yeah, well, 
that are meant to kind of mimic the frequencies of those instruments. And to me, this sounds a lot like MIDI music, but I, I see that you're talking about that after this, so I don't know if technically it was considered that at the time. Um, it might have been, because I think that goes back farther, a ways back, but I, I don't know specifically what like they used for this. You're not entirely wrong, because basically in the same time frame of the 80s through kind of the mid-90s, computers were using MIDI systems to basically create music generation, audio generation, for home computers. And I guess one of the biggest players back then and for a long time was IBM. And I guess they kind of helped pioneer this sort of MIDI music technology in the uh, 80s and 90s. Even though this MIDI technology was developed for mostly for PCs, um, it's pretty well known that this technology trickled down into Nintendo's handheld systems, including the Game Boy Advance, which was the successor to the Game Boy and Game Boy Color, as well as the Nintendo DS, which uh, have MIDI tracks in each game. Hmm. I picked a fairly iconic game from that era, Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire, which were the third games in the series. It was Pokemon Red and Blue, then Pokemon Gold and Silver, then Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire. Let's play a little clip of this uh, game, and you'll kind of see how... It doesn't sound remarkably different than, say, Super Nintendo. It's just it used a different sort of sound technology to create that sound, I guess, in a small package. Right. Yeah, actually, that's a good point, because the Game Boy series had to... Like, since they're handheld, they have to use lower-level... Yeah, they're always a bit behind technologically. Yeah, so there's not going to be like a big leap from what we just heard. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So this is Pokemon Ruby? Mm Mm-hmm. That's funny. It, it, there still is a notable improvement in the quality, though. Yeah, like it's sure. it does feel like it's still MIDI music at its core, but it feels more. I don't know. It, it feels more filled out, I guess, than some of the older ones. Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, even though it did trickle down into later handhelds, it still was a bit more complex than even the Super Nintendo was at the time. That was kind of the last major development of what could be defined as sort of chiptune style, 8, 16-bit, whatever, style music um, that would eventually be overtaken by actual audio streaming, which is basically just fully recorded audio that sounds no different from, say, a CD. And you said they used MIDI through the Nintendo DS, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. I don't know if the 3DS does or not. I don't really remember, but I know the Switch uses just regular old streaming audio. Oh, okay. The big groundbreaking thing for music after um, MIDI and obviously the Super Nintendo era was um, optical music storage, Hmm. which optical media basically is like CDs. Um, And this allowed for a much larger storage capacity than traditional cartridges. So this move to optical media that was kind of revolutionized mostly by the PlayStation because it could play uh, CDs as opposed to cartridges 
it meant that you could have much more powerful audio generation hardware at higher quality sort of samples than even the Super Nintendo. So in 1994, a CD-ROM-equipped PlayStation uh, was able to support 24 channels of 16-bit samples at up to a 44.1 kilohertz sample rate, which, for those of you that pay attention, is the same sample rate of CD audio quality. Yeah, we've discussed that before. I mean, that's pretty much the standard digital audio across the board, CD or otherwise. Yeah, very true. The, the, the interesting thing is that even though the CD-ROMs used uh, on PlayStation allowed for this basically fully streamed sort of imperceptible audio that's equivalent to, say, CD recorded music, uh, some game companies were still kind of stuck in the old ways of using what's called sequenced music, which is basically what we were discussing before the era of beeps and boops and tones and a little bit of pre-recorded stuff mixed in. Uh, one of the major uh, video game companies back then, Square, which would eventually become Square Enix, uh, who make the Final Fantasy series, still used sequenced music in their games as opposed to fully streamed audio music. So I wanted to play a little clip of one of the um, soundtracks from Final Fantasy VII to kind of show how some game companies were still using the older style of comp uh, music composition. And then uh, to contrast it, I wanted to play a clip from of music from the video game Metal Gear Solid, which actually used streamed recorded music that basically is imperceptible from, say, you know, any sort of background orchestral music you'd see in a movie or whatever. So let's first play a clip of the Final Fantasy VII theme music, and then we'll play a clip of Metal Gear Solid, and you'll see the difference between the two. So uh, that's interesting. It, you can tell that there is a generational difference between the two, because mm-hmm. um, the Final Fantasy one sounds more like N sixty four style. It's funny you mentioned that actually, because while the PlayStation, obviously being on optical media, had all of the advantages that came with that, the N sixty four still used what were called at the time solid state cartridges. But even though the N64 still used a cartridge as opposed to um, CDs, it did support an integrated and scalable sound system that was capable of 100 channels of PCM oh, wow. with an improved uh, sample rate of 48 kilohertz. So basically, it kind of made up for the fact that no, it couldn't play fully uncompressed streamed sort of CD quality audio by just having a shit ton of channels to basically mimic as absolutely closely as possible you know sounds and music and whatnot well and the sample rate is way is higher than is actually a bit higher yeah PlayStation. I well thought, that's interesting basically you kind of hit the nail on the head the final fantasy 7 music is more akin to what the 
uh, N64 was capable of, whereas the music from Metal Gear Solid was the full capabilities of the Sony PlayStation. So for all intents and purposes, the PlayStation, at least sound-wise, was more powerful. Because Nintendo have had so many iconic video games, you know, Mario, Zelda, they, you know, were still able to produce really good and uh, memorable video game music with the limitations that they had. I figured I would pick a song from the N64 game Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. I know we've played music from this game before on this show. I think it was when we each had to pick like our favorite video game music or something. Oh yeah, because we did one about video game music from our childhoods. Yeah, and I think I played the the song from the Lost Woods in the Legend of Zelda because I was telling you like uh, I got lost. I literally got lost in there, in that level, and <laughs> couldn't get out for days. And so that stupid music got stuck in my head, and I almost died. <laughs> uh, I didn't pick that song this time. This time I picked the main theme song, which is pretty pretty almost as iconic as the original Zelda theme. So. Hmm. Let's play a little clip of the uh, Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time theme music. Yeah, again, it seems like it's a it's a step up from the previous generation as we've said probably about five times in this episode but it's true it's very incremental but you know you can tell there's a bit of a improvement um obviously Mm. like you said this is technically not on the same level as cd quality audio yeah like the metal gear solid one we played but yeah this n64 was kind of like the last vestige of tone generating style of video game music uh, before it all just moved to straight, you know, CD quality, pre-recorded sounds. So, as we kind of alluded to with the PlayStation, because it was able to basically play full quality audio, um, basically after the N64 and PlayStation era um, into the late 90s and early 2000s, basically the ability to actually just stream music in video games negated the need for any sort of sequenced music that was found in prior consoles. Um, so the ability to take entirely pre-recorded music had a lot of advantages over sequencing. Uh, as far as sound quality, music could be produced much more freely um, in any with any sort of uh, number of instruments, allowing developers to basically record uh, tra- soundtracks or music tracks to be played back during the game. Yeah, I mean, most video games today, and even, probably even for the last 15-ish years, maybe, maybe 20 now. Yeah. You know, video game music has basically just become, you know, no different from like a film score or something, you know. Um, obviously, the the specific music style is dependent on the game. But, you know, a lot of video game soundtracks now are, you know, just the same as if you're listening to a movie soundtrack. And I think this also opened up the door for a lot of like licensed music as well. Um, oh, yeah, if you look at absolutely. games like Grand Theft Auto, they're known for shoving in a whole bunch of just like, you know, well-known songs and whatnot that exist outside of the video game world, but, you know, you can play them back in-game in real time the same way you would listen to it anywhere else. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point, actually. It, it, being able to just stream, you know, pre-recorded music allows for 
licensing of musicians, licensing of songs. And I know you mentioned when I was trying to think of um, a good example to play for an iconic game that kind of came out after this era. Mm. And you mentioned Halo. So I'm like, okay, whatever. Let's. I, I was never a Halo person because I never had an Xbox, to be honest. Me neither. I, w- I was just trying to think of a modern... No, no, no. You're, you, it's, it's, it's a good example. I'm sure a lot of people know the, ga- the games. And because they came out for the Xbox, which w- that system or series of systems sort of were post-sequential uh, music. So, yeah, let's let's play a little clip of the opening theme of Halo, which came out in, what, 2003? I don't know. Probably something like that. And you'll see how basically it's just it's in, in indistinguishable from you know, say, a movie score. Something I was thinking about, um, you know, to kind of close off this conversation. Mm Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't want to say that like oh the 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 art or the science of video game music is dead now that we can just use you know any kind of music we want because obviously mm-hmm. like it still takes a lot of very extremely talented people to make music for these games um, mm-hmm. but there's also I think an element of game design specific to music that you have to think about too because um, and and it's something I actually I forgot until just now was. Um, uh, what's the most uh, What's the most recent newest Zelda game? Uh, Winds of uh, Breath of the Wild. Yeah, I was gonna say Winds of the Past. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're close. Because I, if I remember correctly, isn't the music in that at least like as you're playing the game, isn't the music um, like procedurally generated or something like that? Yeah, it actually is. I, w- I was reading a little bit about that. It's really interesting. The composer wanted to create these really simplistic piano style compositions to kind of create the atmosphere for the game. Mm -hmm. But the different um, soundtracks are procedurally turned on and off depending on what you're doing in the game. If you're riding on a horse through a field, it's going to play a certain soundtrack. If you're, if you just happen to come across an enemy, it's going to switch to like a combat soundtrack. And it's, you're right. It's much more uh, procedurally triggered based on actions in the game, as opposed to just, oh, level one is this sound, level two is this sound. But it's very, I haven't played the game, but it's very fluid, right? The, in the way that it kind of shifts yeah, back and forth. Yeah, let me, let me see if I can find a quick example. That's actually a good way to kind of cap this series off, because we yeah. talked about a lot of Zelda shit. Yeah, well, I, I guess my thought process behind that is just, like, there's still ways that the, not necessarily the quality of the audio is improving these days, but, like, the programmatic intentions behind it or like how it's used to create that video game experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, I still, I still think there's ways to go with that. And really as AI improves as well, we might see more stuff in this realm of using the experience that the player is going through in the game to drive what that music is. Oh, Absolutely. And they're already able to do that to a pretty good degree where like yeah. the certain scores in the game will be triggered based on, you know, where you are on the level, what enemy you're fighting. But it's still kind of 
story, uh, you know, for a lot of the scores, they, they tend to be tied mostly to more linear games as opposed to more open world games. Right. So what Zelda was able to do with creating these different musical accompaniments that were sort of procedurally triggered, even even in being in an open world, was pretty amazing. Um, I did find a, a clip of the entire soundtrack of the game they strung it all together, and it's six hours long. Holy shit. So, yeah, let's just play the main theme, I guess. But like you were saying, I mean, uh, there's all different sorts of compositions uh, triggered for different events. Some are relaxing, some are kind of stressful. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, let's just do the main theme because it's kind of pretty and I like it. Well, that was uh, that was good. I, uh, I I'm glad we did this topic. It was a uh, it's a good, and you know, like we we've had several video game topics on the show before and related to music, but we've never we, we've never t- tackled this specifically, obviously, which is why we're doing it now. But um, it's yeah. um it's good that we're doing it. In a way, it's almost funny that it took us this long to do this topic. I know, right? All right, well, listeners, if you want to check out some of those other video game related topics that we've done, uh, go to getyourfunk.com and type in video games. And there's a good seven or eight maybe that we've done prior to this. Oh, wow. And if you want to talk to us and say, hey, Kyle and Peter, then you can go to facebook.com slash getyourfunk. Um, this has been your host, Peter. And this has been your host, Kyle. That felt weird. I feel like usually we do Kyle first. It's okay. Um, <laughs> bye. <laughs>